All right, chapter 18 is a, a pretty significant chapter, and there's a lot of truth that's going to be expressed today. In fact, in these 14 verses, there's going to be some things that you're really going to want to tap into, but we're not going to have time to do that today. We're, we're sort of in a hurry because the Methodists, the Presbyterian, and others are going to beat you to the restaurants for your Father's Day lunch, and so I'm going to put it in overdrive and, and uh, speak more quickly today. Actually, there's a lot of stuff in the text that we wouldn't be able to chew on to if we had the time. It's one of those texts that you just sort of need to let marinate and some things that you'll want to mark and come back to. And so maybe we'll do that throughout the day or maybe the next couple of days, some things that get triggered in your thoughts while I'm reading the scripture that you'll circle back to. Let's begin in chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Might be a good place for us to pause for just a moment. In this cultural uh, expression, this message that is going out today, hashtag me too, it requires us as a church kind of lift off the pages of the Bible God's intention for people specifically women and children. Uh, Jesus is doing something here that is very anti-cultural. In the culture of the first century, men were the predominant ones in the culture. In fact, it was men, women who served men, and children had even lesser position than women. Jesus took that and turned it upside down. Jesus elevated women he showed the honor which should be shown to them. And one of the greatest expressions of that is that God made sure that women were the first to know when Jesus Christ was resurrected. Jesus engaged women like no other man did. He did it with great respect and great love, and rightfully so, because he knows men, women, boys and girls are all valued because they're made in the image of God. And now he's taking another group, that the society looked down upon children and he's lifting them by using them as an expression of the gospel saying to the men who were surrounding him you need to be more like this one this child so it's a big big deal that Jesus is doing that way more than an illustration he is communicating the fervor that he has for all people and can I just remind us as children of God that must be our mantra as well that we ought to engage people and show the value that people have because they're all made in the image of God. Makes no difference their gender, their class, their societal position, their race. Nothing matters. They're made in the image of God and God sees them as incredibly valuable as me and you uniquely together and uniquely separated. God sees us in that way. So we're grateful to the Lord for giving us that kind of an illustration to show that kind of thing. So whoever humbles himself, he says in verse 4, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for the temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better for you to enter life crippled 
or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now there's another section that we might be a little interested in. Uh, the scripture is pretty clear here, isn't it? That God has given to his children, people in his kingdom, angels that watch over them. But most importantly, those angels are before the face of God. Now, does that interest you? Then let's just do a collective, hmm, hmm. Yeah, you might want to come back to that one and dig a little bit there. Take your, your concordance and look up all the places where angels are mentioned and how they interact with people. Angelology is pretty interesting, but you do realize that we have something greater than angels. His name is Jesus Christ, and His Spirit is prevailing with us at all times. I, I'm not just interested in an angel watching over me. I want the Spirit of God living in me and the power of Christ to be with me at all times, and I want the same for you. So where did I leave off? Verse, uh, I'm at verse 12. Uh, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it, will, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray together. Father, there are many different lives represented in this room. For some, their life is going well. And for others, they face immense challenge and hardship. No matter the difference of our living, let your truth be most pronounced in our life right now. Let us be singularly focused on you. For God, we need your word. I believe today that your word can speak into every individual that hears my voice in this moment and in moments to come. I pray that your word will be known as powerful as it is today and that its authority would shape us and transform us as we give ourselves in submission to it. So help us, God, I pray. Amen. So the disciples are in this discussion. The Gospel of Luke actually gives us a little bit more in, uh, insight to this. Luke says that they're in a pretty heated argument among themselves of who is the greatest. So as they're having this wrangling time together, they actually bring the question to Jesus and pose it to him. Basically saying, so who do you think among us is the greatest? Now, it's pretty easy for me to do this um, you know, a couple thousand years later, looking back at the history that Christ has, but I think it's, it bears witness to say, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous question to ask him who is the greatest among them. It would be like, say, five of us getting together with LeBron James and doing a three-on-three -three basketball game and after it's over with, and we've been schooled, like you know we would be schooled, we're sitting down, wringing wet with sweat, drinking back a Gatorade, and we say, hey, LeBron, so which is it? Which one of us is the greatest? Well, that's a ridiculous question, isn't it? 
Or it'd be like us playing some backyard football and Tom Brady show up and us gathering after the game is over and saying, hey, Tom, so which one of us do you think is the greatest? So it is that the disciples are asking Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the greatest among them. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But we all have this way of moving towards the wrong thoughts and the wrong mindsets about the kingdom and about our standing in the kingdom and our standing with other people. There are times that we all fall prey to this. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to do so. In fact, we even posture ourselves so that other people will think about us differently than maybe what we truly are. We want to be seen in the highest light. There are times when we fail to remember that we, we are like all others. There is no one righteous, no, not one. In fact, as far as I go into this journey with Christ and his kingdom, I'm recognized I'm not who I used to be. But man, do I ever have a long way to go. I'm far from righteousness as Christ demands from me. I shouldn't put myself up on a pedestal thinking that I've got it together. I'm one of the greatest in the kingdom. That's far from the truth. There are times that we fail to remember as well that everything that we possess is actually for God, by God. It's all for His glory. There are times that we get the wrong mindset and we begin to think that it's for us and it's for our glory. And that kind of thinking is obviously wrong, like we're living the greatest life now. The greatest life is not meant for now. The greatest life is meant to be lived today that makes impact for the greatness of eternity. May we all have that kind of thought. And there are times that we forget that we've just been given gracious gifts. Be it the life we live, the breath that we take, the possessions we hold and manage for the kingdom, all of that is given to us by God as a gift. And we should all think in those terms. But we have a tendency to think in a distorted way, like we're better or greater or among the greatest. That at least we're not like so-and-so, or at least we're not like them. And the Lord is telling us to think differently about our life. He's certainly wanting the disciples to do that. Now, when we get into that mindset, it comes from a faulty foundational belief. You recognize that in the disciples. How do they get to a crazy question when they're asking the Son of God? Or as he liked to be called, the Son of Man. How do they ask the Son of Man who is the greatest among men? It's just crazy. How do you get to that place? Well, you get to that place because you have a faulty foundational belief. And their faulty foundational belief could be really elementary stated in this way. They believed that it was God's will to send His Son, the Messiah, to earth in order to bring the kingdom of God physically on earth. And that as Jesus was there, the King of the Messiah, He was gathering around Him followers, disciples, who would then, with Him, come against the Roman Empire and that Jesus would take the throne that was Caesar's and bring it to His own self and that He would bring the land back to Israel, and the glory of the land would be given to Israel again. They really believed that they were going to be that group who would physically be ruling in the kingdom of God. So they're thinking with Jesus, hey, if you're the leader of this, which one of us is going to be your generals? Or who's going to be the majors? Or who's going to be the lieutenants or the captains or the sergeants? Who's going to be the privates? Which of us fall in the tears of your kingdom as it is? Now, you and I know that that's a faulty foundational belief because Jesus Christ did not come 
to earth to establish his physical kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom, which he brought from heaven to earth. And what he's doing is a measure of grace. He's saying, my spiritual kingdom is wide open, and the door is me. I'm open for people to come into my kingdom, and I'm establishing this kingdom spiritually and inviting all people to come in. And when I set it up physically, all those who are in it spiritually will be in. And those who are not in the spiritual kingdom of God will be rejected from the physical kingdom of God. So he's establishing this kingdom. The disciples have a faulty understanding about that. And because of that, they have some faulty statements. So really, faulty beliefs promote foolish arguments, don't they? The prop, not properly understanding the kingdom of God, they make some wrong conclusions. I like the way Douglas MacDonald states it. He says, Jesus is answering the disciples' questions about elevation, who is greatest among the kingdom, by actually commenting on the entrance where Jesus is saying, what makes you think that you're in the kingdom? So they're asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus is posing a more important question, how do you know you're in the kingdom? It's the question that's good for us all today to ponder. See, wrong beliefs and wrong assumptions keep people from truly entering the kingdom of God. There is religion that promotes access to God that they cannot give. Now, if you think about it, religion often is a movement of achievement. It's preachers, pastors, or call them, if you might, coaches that are encouraging people to live their best life now. To live the rules now well and in order that you might have the eternal access to God. Can I just tell you that Meadowbrook Church is not part of a religion that gives you access to God. Jesus Christ is the access to God. What we do as a church is we come together as a group of believers that Christ is the access to God. He's the doorway to God. And we collectively come together. We pool our resources together. And we administer grace in a, in a manifold way as God has given us the privilege of doing so. And we minister it locally. We minister it around the world. And we engage one another. We live with one another. We disciple one another. We walk side by side in righteous journeys together. That's our purpose. Purpose. It's not in order that we can come and maybe one day have achievement to gain access to heaven, to God. It's not that at all. In fact, Jesus tells us the opposite of that. He's telling us that you've got to enter into the kingdom of God, not through religion, but as a child in faith. You know, if we could obey all the rules, what would we ever do with all the rules that we've already disobeyed? If we could, from right now forward, live righteously with the righteousness ever measured to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the standard, it just doesn't pan out. So Jesus gives the answer. He says in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a couple of action words there that I think kind of lift off the page. Unless you turn... It would be, um, uh, you and I will often communicate this as you have to repent. It's a different word here, but it's, it's turning to God, turning away from who you are and turning to God. And what's interesting about this, this verb is that it's actually in the passive voice, which means that the subject of the sentence is being acted upon. 
So you and I don't turn to God by our own will alone. We turn to God by His grace. Only God's grace gives us the means by which we even discover that we're in the wrong direction. It's only God's grace that we discover that we're in need of mercy, that we have sin. So in that, he says, turn, that is, allow God to turn your life. And the way he allows that turning to happen is that we come to him humbly as a child. And what does that mean? Because he's not saying be, be childish. He's talking, I think, about the posture of the child in view of society. Now remember, I told you men were the highest, women were beneath, and children were the lowest. A child has no power in the first century. The child in the first century was even lower than the child in 1965 when I was born. You know, when I was coming up in, in our days, the family would gather together. The adults went first and the kids went second. It's totally flipped now, isn't it? It's like the kids get all they want, the boys uh, the, the guys and the, the moms pick up the scraps. It, it was totally different in the first century. He is not saying that you had to be childish. He's saying you need to recognize you are powerless. A child has no prestige. A child has no position. Now think about this in terms of the kingdom of God. Jesus has put this child in the midst of the men who believe they are going to lead the kingdom of God and wondering who among them is the greatest. He puts that child forward and he says, unless you understand yourself as a child, one who is powerless, without prestige, without possession, who comes mercifully to the kingdom of God and seeks that mercy, you'll not enter the kingdom. In other words, guys, you have nothing to offer God. God has everything to offer to you. Now catch this. If you come to him as a child, powerless, without prestige, and without position, here's what he does. He says, come into my family, and I will give you power, and I will give you prestige, and I will give you position. I'll make you a joint heir with my son. It's an amazing truth that God is giving to them. If they'll just understand it and grab hold of it with faith, apply it, and the same is for us. That's the entry into the kingdom. And the kingdom flourishes in our life when we're doing life in that way. I like, in this case, the message paraphrase Peterson wrote about this verse. And he says in, in uh, chapter 18, verse 3, this way. I'm telling you, once and for all, that unless you return to square one and start over like children... You're not even going to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in it. So here's, here's what Christ is saying. He's laying it out there. You've got the wrong discussion going on about who's the greatest. You need to be asking, how do we get in? How do we get in? And we get in through humility and faith. So the Lord is instructing his disciples, think differently. Thought, stop thinking about being exalted and start thinking about being humble. He's telling them to stop thinking that they've got it all together and start thinking that they need God's great grace. All right, so that comes to a summation point there, and it's this, that with humility and faith, enter the kingdom of God by His grace. It's the first part of this section. All right, then Jesus moves the conversation to the protective nature that He has 
for the children of God. You know, as a parent, we can be pretty protective over our kids. Uh, Kay and I were fairly protective over our boys, but we sort of learned along the way. You know, when you have your first one and they drop the passy, you pick it up and you go sterilize it and give it back to them. You have the second one, you drop the passy and you kind of brush it off on your legs and plug them back up. And by the time the third comes around, you say, hey, get down and pick up your own passy and put it in your mouth. You know, things just change. We finally came to the conclusion that if they weren't bleeding out, just go back out there and play. It's no big deal. But we did have a sense of protection about them, particularly if somebody, an adult, was coming against them. In fact, there were some things that you could do to Kay or me or say to Kay and me that we would receive, would be, okay, we'll let that go. But you say or do those things to our kids, and we take on a different idea. We have a different attitude about it. In fact, I don't care who it is. She could be an 83-year-old mom. She turns into a she-bear if her 62-year-old son or daughter is being attacked in some way. We just have this protective nature about us when it comes to our kids. And Jesus has that same protection about the children of God. And he tells the disciples about that. And he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And remember, the question is about who's the greatest. So Jesus is redefining greatness for those in the kingdom of God. The greatest in the kingdom of God are those who are most humble. But he says the act of the greatest in the kingdom of God is that they act towards other children of God with receptivity. That, that they're really engaging them. Now, I think this is way more than just being hospitable to other Christians. I think what he's talking about here is intentionally living with them for the purpose of holiness and the purpose of kingdomness. It's discipling one another. It's living life towards righteousness. So when he's talking about receiving a child, you and I need to be thinking about who in our life is a child in the kingdom of God that we need to receive to ourselves. Who could we be investing in to pour into them with a disciple's heart so that they might too become disciplers? Who might we receive unto ourselves for that purpose and walk side by side with a holy, righteous walk? Now the reason why I say that is because Jesus gives warning to people who are in the kingdom of God who would lead other children of God to sin. He gives great warning to them. He says it would be better off that they were dead than to live their life in a way to engage sinfully with other children of God, swaying them, drawing them away from the kingdom of God. Now, he gives a very vivid image of this. I caught a glimpse of this when we were at an excavation site in Israel. This is a millstone. And you can see what's missing there. There should be a four-by-four plank that runs through the millstone. And, of course, what's missing is a, a donkey or an ox that would be connected to it by harness. So it moves in the circle, and it's grinding. The picture doesn't do it justice. This is a massive millstone. And Jesus, in a very vivid way, these are everywhere among excavation sites. These are common tool. In the, in the first century. So no doubt Jesus could easily just point it out or just express the words and people would immediately have an image of this. It would be better that that millstone would be hung around the neck of the person they'd thrown into the Sea of Galilee for them to continue 
to engage people sinfully to bring them astray from the kingdom of God. In other words, this is a risky maneuver, and it would be better off that they were dead than to continue to be alive and sway people away from God's kingdom. So for the person who leads others who have humbly entered the kingdom of God into sin, it would be better off that they be dead. Now, you and I are living in a day of great sin and great reproach. I'm not talking about in the world. As Jesus says in this passage, it's expected that the world would be engaged in sinfulness. It is atypical for a follower of Jesus Christ to be engaged in sin and to engage other people who are followers of Christ to engage in sin. Now, I know it's common for us today, but it should be atypical. It should be so alarming to us that uh, we, we wouldn't just be given to it as the way it is today. But unfortunately, it, it seems to be the way it is. And we're grieved and we're anguished over the revelation of church leaders and others in the church who sin not just against God, but sin against other believers in a way that moves them further away from Jesus Christ. And all the while, the world and scoffers laugh at us as we represent Jesus Christ and laugh at our God who we have his name, they laugh because we are no better than the world who has not been uh, freed from the slavery of sin. Honestly, I don't know what to say to people when they're asking me these days about this person and that person and that leader and, and that church that, that falls. I, I'm having a hard time even grabbing hold of it and speaking to it. Except to say this, the Lord said that it would be this way. Now he says in the last days that this is what we're going to experience. Now you and I need to remember last days is a period of time from the time Jesus was ushering in his spiritual kingdom when he was here on earth. It is the last day from that point all the way to he returns again in his glory. So you and I are living somewhere in the history, eternal future, we're looking back we're living somewhere in the history of the last days. Now, notice what Jesus said will occur in the last days. Understand this, that in the last days, there will, be t there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, you don't get a pass because Jesus said through his spirit to the apostle Paul that it was going to be this way. This is atypical. This is anti-Christian. This is unbiblical. This is a life that is not given to the way of Christ. And Jesus says to people who live this way and engage other people in the church to live this way, it would be better off that you would be dead at the bottom of the sea than to live and continue that way. We ought not play around with that. And we ought not grow accustomed to a pastor, a deacon, a Sunday school leader, a life group leader, or any other member of the church who engages sinfully and encourages other people to engage sinfully with them 
in the church. We should be very different from that, and we should call each other to that difference and live it out. We should open ourselves up to a very vulnerable position about letting people see into our lives and us see into their lives that we might walk side by side with righteousness, not side by side with sinfulness. You're kind of quiet out there. Are you okay? That's, that's the way it is. Christ demands of us to be radically different than the kingdom of the world. And he's given us the measure by his Holy Spirit who lives in us to live holy and righteous lives. You and I do not have to be given to sin, and we certainly don't need to encourage other people to do the same. But somehow, some, so many people have embraced the sin of the world while claiming to embrace the kingdom of God. What is done in darkness, God promises, is going to be brought to light. Now, I recognize most of the time we understand that passage to be on the day of the Lord when we all stand before Christ, and I believe that there is a truth to that, that we will all give an account for everything done as Christians in this body. The Bible says that we will give an account for every idle word we have spoken. Man, does that not bring fear and conviction to my heart. What he's going to do in that moment is not punish us for those things, grateful to God that he's punished Christ Jesus in our place on the cross of Calvary. But we're going to be, holding, we're going to be held accountable for those things, and he's going to push those aside, allowing the blood of Christ Jesus to wash those away, and all that will be left will be rewarded for all eternity. All those things done in darkness are going to be brought to light. But periodically... God brings to light the things hidden and done in darkness in this world as well. And when he does so, the sin is ugly, it's repulsive, it is unbiblical, it goes against the nature of Christ that dwells within us, and it will certainly be disciplined. I know that in our culture, sin is embraced, but in the culture of Christ and his kingdom, we can't embrace it. In fact, we've got to do everything opposite of that. We have to live beautifully in the kingdom of God, and God has given us the measure by which we can live and flourish in the kingdom of God. He's given us the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the church to speak truth into us, into our spirit, that our spirits might grow in righteousness and holiness. But you know that the world is doing the opposite. The world is trying to feed your flesh, the flesh where sin resides, that which you were born with, that predisposition to sin. The world wants to feed that, and it does it in, in ways that you and I might not be uh, understanding totally. Listen, the world's entertainment is the feeding of the flesh of the world. You cannot watch quote-unquote, normal TV and not have your flesh fed. The language of TV, the language of movies is, movies is not the language of the kingdom residents of God. It's the language of the kingdom residents of the world. The storylines in those shows are not the storylines of holy people. They're the storylines of unholy people. And if you choose to be entertained by them, you are only feeding the flesh which mounts in the sin in your life. You and I will have a very difficult time walking in righteousness and holiness while our sinful flesh is being fed by the world. 
even the songs that the world sings, the songs about situations, sinful situations, and, and adulterous situations, and, and situations of fornication and drunkenness, all the things that God told us to stay away from. You cannot have that feeding your flesh and at the same time hope to God that you're going to walk with righteousness. It just won't happen. You're going to have to make some choices. You're either in the kingdom and flourishing in the kingdom with righteousness and journeying side by side, or you're going to be in the kingdom of the world. All the while, you might be claiming verbally you're in the kingdom of God, but you're engaging in the kingdom of the world. So we must see it for what it is. We must not embrace the world and its sinfulness. We must protect our hearts from its disastrous and deadly ways. Can I just say the world is not a playground for which Christians can safely play. But so many Christians today do just that, naively so, and they walk towards destruction. But the kingdom of God is so radically different. In the kingdom of God, God's spirit is his presence in us, in our indwelling spirits. He is nurturing us. He's feeding the spirit in us. The Word of God is shaping us. The praise of God that we have is building us a great heart of gratitude and building in us contentment. And the ministry of God is fulfilling and satisfying a deep longing that we would have significance in life. So you're going to have to choose. You're either going to feed the flesh by the world or you're going to be fed in your spirit by the Holy Spirit and the things of the Spirit. You're going to have to choose. And didn't Jesus say it that way in the last book of the Bible? He says, I want you to make a choice. I want you to make a choice either to be hot or cold, but don't try to be somewhere in between. That's where so many people have gotten astray in the church and led others to do so. They want to be somewhere in between. I'm here to tell you, church, you're going to have to make a stand. You're either going to stand in righteousness with Christ or you're going to stand in the world with sin, but you can't have it in both ways. And so he's saying, woe to the one who's trying to be somewhere in between, claiming to have God, but all the while encouraging people in their sin. Woe to the one. We expect that in the world, but you shouldn't expect that in the church. So in a summary, I would say this. With humility and grace, be purposeful to live holy lives in God's kingdom. You know what I've come to discover along with my wife? I used to focus on the sin in my life and try to rid my life of that sin. And there is significance to that. But the greatest power that Kay and I have discovered is not when we focus on getting rid of the sin in our life, but instead when we get the presence of God and his word and his worship and his praise and his truth in our life. The more we press towards those things, the more, or excuse me, the less we pull the things of the world, towards the things of the world. Let's see if I can frame that right. The more we press to the holy way of God, the less pull we feel from the unholiness of the world. So press to the holy things of God and encourage other people to do so. Other children of faith, we're meant to be living in community together so that we grow together in that. Now perhaps you're here today, maybe even a number of you are living this double life. Publicly, you're proclaiming Christ, but privately, you have hidden sin in your life. You're living out the way of the world. Maybe you've been living with this secret sin for a long time. 
And perhaps the Holy Spirit has been revealing to you that it's not hidden from Him. Or maybe you haven't heard the Holy Spirit in a while. The longer you stay in that sin and disregard His conviction, the more easy it is for you not to hear His engaging voice. I want you to hear today that this passage is meant to be up front where Christ is calling you to a life of blessing in His kingdom. A life filled with joy, not a life filled with regret. Jesus is calling you to that. Or maybe the affection of your heart is what Jesus is pointing out. Affection of the heart is what Jesus calls the treasure of the heart. Now, treasure of the heart is good. It just depends on the object of the treasure. What is that treasure? For Jesus says, make sure you're seeking the kingdom first. You and I have a tendency in the flesh to treasure the things of the world. And it doesn't even have to be things that are bad. Material possession is not bad. Riches are not bad. But it's when they become the treasure of our heart. That's when we go amok. So maybe it's the treasure, the affection of your heart that Jesus is calling you away from and calling you to something that is not temporary, that is going to be burned away with the conclusion of this world. Maybe he wants you to treasure what is eternal and value that which is eternal. Or maybe you've been brought into the fold. You were part of the sheep that Christ brought in that as he is the gate and you're, you've been in the fold. But somehow along the way, you've come out of that and you've gone astray. Maybe you can't even point the time that it happened. Maybe it wasn't even a clear conscious decision for you to do that. But you find yourself distant and removed from God. Can I tell you that God is seeking you today? At the end of this section that I was reading in chapter 18, he's like the shepherd who has the sheep fold. And in the fold is a hundred sheep. But he's counting them and he gets to 97, 98, 99. 97, 98, 99, and he realizes one is missing. You know what he does? He leaves the 99, and he goes seeking after that one that's missing. Maybe that's you today. You've been astray from God for a while, and he's calling out to you. Now, be careful, because you need to make sure you're hearing the right voice. The enemy who will cloak himself with light will hope that you hear his disguised voice as the voice of Christ. And the reason why you know that to be not the voice of Christ is because what do you hear when Christ comes to you? If you're hearing him reprimand you, if you're hearing him talking about punishing you, if you hear him talking about how disappointed he is in you, that it's not the voice of Christ. The voice of Christ is very different, and Jesus tells us that. It's the image of the shepherd who finally finds that one. He goes to the one where he is distant. That is for us in our sin. He goes to us and he gets us and he takes us. You can get the image of a shepherd putting the lamb on his shoulders and bringing him back to the fold. And he puts him down. And the way the Lord says it is that I have more joy over finding that one than over the 99 who never left me. That's the joy of Christ. To bring you back to himself. Would you allow him to do that great work? Which brings me to this final summary point. With thanksgiving and repentance, return to the fold of Jesus if you've gone astray. Just, just come back. Just come back to the fold. Now, some of you never left. Some of you 
are among the 99 who have been true and faithful. And man, do I ever have great encouragement because of you. You're, you're part of the group who has remained steadfast, not moved towards the things of the world, but instead stay in the word. You're so faithful, and it's an encouragement to not just the church, but it brings honor to Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, stay the course. Stay where you are, because God has the means by which through you to do great ministry. You can do ministry like few others can do it because you've been faithful all this time. And can I remind you that there is a day coming in eternity that God will reward your faithful service, that God will reward your faithfulness, that you didn't linger, you didn't go to the left, you didn't go to the right, you remain steadfast in Him, that for all eternity God is going to reward you. Stay the course. And when you find people who have lingered and you engage them, do it like Jesus. Do it for the purpose of calling them back to Him. Do it for the purpose of bringing them into the sheepfold, loving them, caring for them, walking side by side with them. Be careful lest you fall in the same sin that they find themselves in. But go after them. And if they choose to not engage in the kingdom life, here's what the Bible says, avoid them. Now, what is God saying to your heart in this word? There have been a lot that I've shared with you today. What's the treasure for you? What's the nugget that just stands out to you? What, what touched your heart? What did the Spirit bring conviction to you? I want to ask you just to allow that to be settled into a prayer. Many times my prayer goes like this after my personal time. Father, I've heard you say this, and I acknowledge this truth, and that my life is leaning away from that truth. I confess that sin, and I ask, Lord, that you would help write me to what is true, that I might live upright before you and others. What is that that you heard today that God is saying, be right, uprighted in that truth, and live it? with great grace. Let's pray. Father, first I thank you for the clarity of Jesus' words, how he resets greatness, how he shares with us that this kingdom is a kingdom of humility today, but one day will be a glorious kingdom. I'm grateful, Lord, that you have given us the privilege of being connected as a church family to walk life side by side with each other. Let it be towards righteousness and not towards sin. Let us be distinct, Lord, by choosing your kingdom and your kingdom life over the kingdom of the world and the life of the world. And I pray in doing so we would represent you well, that Christ, his name, would be greatly honored and that his gospel would be presentable in a way that would bring transformation to people. Oh, help us, God, I pray because we're in need, desperate need of your help. We cannot do this in our own way. So we thank you for the help that is given. We thank you for the power that is ours by your spirit. We thank you for your word that is shaping us even now. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, our Redeemer.